Welcome to MNI's FedSpeak podcast. I'm Pedro da Costa, and I'd like to extend a warm welcome to today's guest, Seth Carpenter. Seth is a former Fed board economist who spent 15 years at the U.S. Central Bank, including as deputy director of the Division of Monetary Affairs. He was also a senior treasury official and is now chief global economist at Morgan Stanley. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Pedro, I'm very, very happy to be here. We're speaking about a week out from the next Fed decision, and it's not a particularly controversial meeting. Everyone expects a hold, but there are folks in the market who are hoping for some kind of hint or signal uh, of a rate cut as soon as, as early as March. Do you think they'll get it? I don't, especially not for March, But uh, and, and let's talk about that. But at some point, we should probably come back. I think people are also hoping for some sort of hint on what might happen as a next step for, for QT. But when it comes to the rate cut, our baseline view is the first cut comes in June, and we're looking for 100 basis points this year. To say the least, there's lots of uncertainty in the world right now. Uh, I could easily imagine it happening sooner than our baseline in June at the May meeting. But March, really, from my perspective, and given our forecast for where the data will go over the next two months, March really seems too soon. And given that amount of uncertainty, it seems hard to see what the upside would be for the FOMC, for Jay Powell to lean at all aggressively in the direction of a March cut. And if anything, I have to say over the past uh, week or two, the market has been paring back a little bit the probability that it describes to a, a March rate cut. So I, I, I wouldn't hold my breath for anything leaning leaning for March specifically. Was the way that the, the Fed spoke to markets in December between Chair Powell's press conference, the message from the SEP, did they err on the side of being too dovish and send the wrong signals to market the markets? Because it seems like ever since then, they've been trying to talk markets down from a, a March cut. So I totally agree with your reading of things uh, about the attempt to walk things back. I think the challenge for them is they have had in their projections for a long time now that they would be doing some cutting in 2024. The fact that we were at the December 2023 meeting and they didn't hike means that almost by construction then, uh, they, they were going to be signaling a peak of rates and that the next move would have to be down. I think if you take that essentially unavoidable fact and put it in the context of a market that was already rallying, where we already saw interest rates, long end and short end rates already starting to come down, adding that extra bit of information that really shouldn't have that much marginal content. Adding that in in that context, though, really did help to set things up. And then we had the press conference where after Chair Powell went away from the prepared remarks and started going off script answering questions, I think it really did give the markets a lot more to latch onto that that rate cuts were, were coming and maybe more imminent than perhaps was intended. And then we did see a bit of backtracking. Again, I, like I said before, there's lots of uncertainty and exact timing of these things is going to be hard. And so the pushback that we got from other FOMC participants was, with maybe one or two examples, was not particularly specific, not particularly aggressive, because they can't know for sure how the data are going to come out. And the last thing I suspect they want to do is to stamp their foot and, and shout, "There's no chance we're going to uh, there's no chance we're going to cut rates in March," and then have the data come in surprisingly soft to the downside and then have to turn around and surprise markets again. So I think they've been trying to push back based on their modal forecast while being cognizant of the the uncertainty. And so we've been left in this middle ground. What's your assessment of why markets have been so 
you know, so far wrongly ahead of the Fed in pricing in cuts. I think when we started last year, markets were pricing in cuts as early as September, if I'm not mistaken. And and even still today, you know, markets are kind of dabbling with with as many as six cuts for the year, which would imply pretty much every every meeting after March. And yet the message from the committee is more in the three to four rate cut vicinity. Why do you think there's been that disconnect and how do you think it gets bridged? Great questions. And there, there really has been a roller coaster, shall we say. So if we go back to just before the December meeting, there was less than even odds, you know, less than 50% probability of a rate cut in March. Then the market sort of got all the way to pricing in more than a full rate cut. And now we're back to less than 50% odds. We don't have to go back far just to the middle of November to where the market's still thinking there's some possibility of a rate hike <laughs> in, in March. So there's been lots of, of back and forth. I think that fact is a fact of the volatility of the data, the unusual state of the world that we're in. There aren't that many business cycles we can look back on where we're coming out of a global pandemic where we had inflation shoot up, but not purely because of aggregate demand or sort of macroeconomic cyclical factors. Lots of people have said when we've been pushing the fact since early 2022 that we think there's going to be a soft landing, that was not popular. And people have said there's never been a time where that's happened before. So all of this sort of having a view, revising the view as the data come in, having a new view, revising the view. That's, I think, part of the back and forth with the market pricing. I think in some sense to be expected, inflection points, turning points are super hard to, to predict and forecast and you get noisy data. I think on top of that, though, remember, markets have to price in not just what the most likely path is. So as an economist on the sell side, when we write our forecast, we say, here's our baseline forecast. Here's what we think is the one single most likely path. And for us, that's that's a June cut. Markets say, oh, well and good, Seth. That, that's fantastic. But the world is a complicated place. What happens if the data come in differently? What happens if you're wrong about how much restraint monetary policy is putting on the economy? What happens if there's you know another financial market event like March of 2023 where banks had trouble? Markets have to price all of those things. And I would say, even with our forecast, and I, I like our forecast, we've been pretty good for so far. If we're going to be wrong, there's probably more probability that it's earlier than an earlier cut than a later cut. And so that means the market should be pricing in a sooner cut than what we have because they're pricing in the probability weighted average, the mean, whereas we're writing down the mode. Uh, I think that distinction explains some of the discrepancy. I don't think you can explain all of it. And there are plenty of people who are more pessimistic on, on the economy than we are. There are clearly people who still think there'll be a recession in 2024, maybe even in early 2024. And even if you only put 25 or 30% probability on that happening, but you think in the event of a recession, the Fed cuts 200 or 300 basis points, that sort of also goes a long way to, to explaining the discrepancy. Do you think the Fed can afford to be more gradual than it has in past cutting cycles in, a, in the kind of soft landing scenario that you outline? Absolutely. And in two distinct but very important ways. One, most experiences we have with cutting cycles happen when there has been an outright recession, and in recent memory, really severe recession. So COVID, obviously an extraordinary case, the previous recession, the financial crisis, 
truly uh, an historic recession for the United States. And so in those circumstances, the cutting happens very, very aggressively because the economy went from doing just fine, if anything, producing a little bit more than is sustainable on a long run basis to collapsing. And the idea of policy then was to stimulate the economy to get as fast a rebound as possible. This is the first cycle since the late 70s where the Fed is raising interest rates to try to slow the economy down, to try to bring inflation down. And if they get a soft landing, i.e. if we avoid a recession like like is our base case, they're not going to need to stimulate the economy. What they're going to want to do is get back to something that's roughly neutral, maybe a hair softer, but roughly neutral, so as to allow the economy to continue to grow without sort of pushing in, in inflation back up, but they're not trying to get this surge of growth the way you normally do coming out of a recession. So, so that that's one reason. I think the other reason that's related to that is if we did get a recession, I think the most likely inference that could be made is that the recession was a function of too much monetary policy tightening. The Fed overdid it. And this is the argument why people didn't like our soft landing call, you know, Central banks kill expansions is sort of uh, one very common view I hear. So let's just stipulate that we're wrong and the economy goes into recession because there's too much rate hiking. To get out of that recession, it's not necessary to stimulate the economy. What's necessary is the Fed has to get rid of the restrictive stance of policy that they put in. So instead of needing to cut 500 basis points like they've done in other recessions to stimulate the economy, at least in the first instance, they just need to go back to their best guess of neutral. So 250, 300 basis points worth of cuts, not the 500 basis points worth of cuts that we've seen in the recession. So for both of those reasons, I do think uh, this will be a less steep and probably less rapid, uh, less deep and less rapid uh, rate cutting cycle than, than we're used to. Let's talk about the inflation outlook, which of course will determine the ultimate course of policy. What is your view on how sustainable the recent decline in inflation will be and how big a risk is there that inflation either stabilizes at levels that are uncomfortably higher than the target or that it actually picks up from here for some reason or another? Absolutely. So I would say on a six-month or 12-month forward basis, we're, we're pretty comfortable that inflation is just trending down and we'll get to levels that the FOMC is comfortable with. And then I think it's really good chance that that we end up stabilizing close to their target and not at you know three percent or higher. So why is that? Well, right now and for the next for the rest of this year, I would say consumer goods inflation is negative and is likely to stay negative for a while. We know these the stories about global supply chains getting disrupted. They're cropping up again with what's going on in the Red Sea. But overall, right now, consumer goods prices in levels are just well above their longer run trend. And as supply chains have healed and as consumers have shifted their consumption basket back towards services away from goods, those prices are starting to fall. And I still see a long way for those prices to fall to get back to something much more more normal. And so I think that disinflationary process has, has legs and should run for quite some time. Similarly, for housing inflation, in the US, we measure that based on rents, either imputed for people who own their homes or literally for people who rent their homes, there was a level shift up there 
during the worst part of COVID, people were working from home. Sometimes you had couples working from home and they wanted more space. Sometimes you had couples working from home with kids going to school from home. Uh, I may or may not still have emotional scars from that. <laughs> um, and, and we just saw across the economy, people wanting bigger places to live and that boosted rents. We know from data, hard data on new rent contracts, new lease contracts around the country, that that stopped, that that rate of increase has stopped. And if anything, in lots of cities has come off a little bit. That just means as the Bureau of Labor Statistics creates the housing inflation data over the next, call it six to nine months, we're going to get continued disinflation there. So I, I, I do think the trend is down. It's going to stabilize somewhere lower. We can't be 100% certain the labor market is still pretty tight. I like to joke with folks that I'm old enough to remember when an unemployment rate below 4% was considered pretty good. And people are like, well, the unemployment rate has drifted up by two or three tenths. All of that is true. And yet it's still quite low. Uh, we're still creating jobs. We do not anticipate a wave of firing. That whole phenomenon does tend to support demand for housing. And remember, in core CPI, shelter inflation is 40%. So there's clear possibility that, call it a year from now, you get an inflection higher. Services inflation has been bouncing all over the place. It's hard to know exactly where it's going to settle in. We're pretty optimistic there. But, you know, there's still some, some, some upside risk there. All in all, though, I don't see a new version of the world where inflation settles in at 3% or higher. If after all of these short, medium term, shall we say, uh, phenomena, go through the system and we've ended up at two and a half percent inflation. I think that just means the Fed doesn't cut rates all the way down to neutral. I think they say, to, to use their phrase, higher for longer. Uh, but that's going to be part of the discussion, not for 2024. That's going to be part of the discussion for 2025. That's really interesting. So it's higher for longer, but over a longer run horizon, if you will. If you look at your baseline scenario for, for a soft landing, what are the biggest risks to it? Is the biggest risk that the Fed takes too long to cut rates, that we are faced with an unexpected shock? What gets us off track potentially? So there's, there is just inherent uncertainty when we make forecasts, when any economist makes forecasts, there's looking at models, there's looking at statistical models, there's using historical data and trying to ascertain which parts of those historical correlations are, are still applicable. And it could just be the case that <clears throat> the tightening in policy that they've already done that we know has shown through to much, much, much lower uh, activity in the housing market that we know has shown through to borrowing costs that we know has shown through to funding costs for banks that there's still more knock-on effects there and the drag that we're seeing in the economy the slowing that we are seeing in the economy just doesn't stop and, and we don't just get close to zero we go through zero i think that's just inherent model uncertainty and forecasting uncertainty that uh, we'll follow as the data come in I think specifically related to that, we did see strains in the banking sector in March of 2023. Short-term interest rates are still really, really high. They're in fact slightly higher than they were then. We think the Fed's going to cut this year, but we think they're going to cut 100 basis points. And so funding costs aren't going to be cheap for banks anytime soon. And so a lot of that same, the same conditions that led to that outcome are still there. We don't think that's a baseline scenario that there'll be sort of another kerfuffle in, in, in the banking system. But in terms of the willingness to intermediate credit, that's been crimped. That's been crimped intentionally by monetary policy. To be clear, that is the point of monetary policy. 
but how do you calibrate that it's just enough without it being too much? As, as I like to say, the Fed's sort of like uh, a mechanic on the economy, but they don't have a torque wrench that's working very well. And uh, they want to tighten things down, but they, they want to stop one turn before too tight. And it's just really hard to gauge if, if they've made that. And what kind of inflation readings are you expecting, say, around mid-year and, and by year-end? So mid-year is going to be super tricky because right now, given how high inflation had gone, how quickly it's going to come down, if you're looking at inflation measured over a 12-month basis, it'll be different than inflation measured over a six-month basis and then annualized, which will look different still than over a three-month basis than annualized. And I have to say, over, one of the reasons why we are comfortable saying it's not going to be until June for the first rate cut is that we actually think those lower time period, the higher frequency, three month and maybe six month readings might actually drift up a little bit over the next two or three months. Nothing to get in the way with the fundamental story of a downward trend in inflation, but we think you could get some noise and we could get some up. We think we are going to get some updrift there uh, in the near term. But then that long run downward trend we think is is pretty strong, and so we're looking at something like you know two point three percent, two and call it two and a quarter percent. Uh, I'll, I'll use fractions instead of decimal points because if I use decimal points, it makes it seem like I'm pretending to have more precision than I actually do. So something around two and a quarter percent, higher than two for sure, below two and a half percent. So in in that range, two 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 three two four on a twelve month change basis by the end of the year. So. Big, big change from where we've been, right? At the end of 2022, CPI was at 6.5%. Uh, so getting all the way down to something well below 2.5%, noticeably below 2.5% is, is huge progress. You know, in, in that terminology where their target is too, maybe you're still a little bit above. Uh, I think they're going to have to grapple with the idea. I'm sorry. I think they're going to have to grapple with the fact that they cannot have precision to one-tenth or two-tenths with any sort of consistency at a low, at a, at a, at a high frequency. So they're going to have to give up a little bit of sort of control uh, uh, or precision. But nevertheless, I think that's a really, that's real, real progress. It's going to be very close to the Fed being able to say, look, we pulled off a soft landing and then be really confident that they can just get the policy rate down to, you know, their idea of neutral, so call it two and a half percent. I wanted to ask you about the framework review that the Fed will be engaging in starting in the latter part of this year. And, and I ask it at this moment because you just mentioned the fact that they can't be so precise. I'm wondering whether they should potentially consider moving toward a target range that would acknowledge that inability to be so precise. I think the lack of precision is definitely going to be part of that framework debate that they're going to have to do. I think the last framework discussion where they talked about flexible average inflation targeting and and specifically there, the implementation of it and how long they were going to stay at the zero lower bound is going to leave a little bit of buyer's remorse perhaps uh, in, in their minds. They're going to have to grapple with all of this. Ultimately, what they end up doing will depend literally on who specifically is sitting around that table uh, and different people have different views. My personal view is a target range does not solve the problems that we're talking about. Uh, so you could imagine instead of hang, having a target of 2%, they have a target of 15 to 2.5%. So percentage point bracketed around this, this the same 2% target. Well, then you'd have to ask, well, does that mean that if you're at 1.49% inflation, you're really unhappy and you want to push inflation up. But if you're at 1.51% and, and as a result inside that range, you're just 
perfectly content. That seems staggeringly arbitrary. And so the answer presumably is, well, no, we shouldn't feel that much different that far, you know, over, over such small two, two basis points worth of difference. And so I think it's that kind of question that's really hard to put into practice with a range. And so if the answer then becomes, well, the closer you get to the edge of the range, the more uncomfortable you get. Okay, so that could be rational. But then why not just say 2% is our target? The further away we get from 2%, the less comfortable we get. Is there something magical about a half a percentage point, if that's the target range width, or a quarter percentage point, or a full percentage point? I think the principle that the further away you are from your target, the less comfortable you are. But if you've got these deviations that are going to be there, and they're temporary, but they're in the one-tenth to two-tenth range, do you act like you've got your hair on fire? The answer is probably no. So I think those are the sorts of issues they're going to have to grapple with if I happen to be king of the world slash chair of the Fed. I don't personally see the virtue of, of a range, but there are other people very plausibly smarter than I am. But smart doesn't have anything to do with it. It's just really a question of who's in the room at the time making that decision and what their preferences are. And I can't let you go, of course, without talking about the balance sheet. Uh, because it's become a major topic of discussion after, as of last year, they still had it on autopilot, but then we get minutes from the December meeting and we get a sense that there's already people making noise about wanting to discuss a taper. And then the market immediately has an entire range of forecasts for when and how this might take place. So I'm wondering where you fall within that range and how you think they're going to approach this discussion and also what's underpinning this renewed concern about them potentially getting to the edge of where they can be. Definitely one of my favorite topics. A bunch of my time at the Fed was spent pouring over the details of the balance sheet, which makes me sound about as uninteresting as I actually am. So <laughs> um, I, I think one part, uh, th there is some context that's useful here because the market really did get spun up in the first two weeks of January, given the the, the reference again in the December FOMC minutes to the to, to the balance sheet and, and QT. What I think, though, is worth remembering is that the minute said that they had talked about the need at some point to talk about the need at some point to slow QT. So in terms of the the minute signaling an imminent end to QT. I just don't think that's at all consistent with the facts. Yeah, it's it's a, one. it's a thinking about thinking about kind of moment, right? Pre pre precisely. And then if we go back to the committees, first they laid out principles for QT, and then they laid out plans for it, all of which involved at some point this tapering of QT. Uh, we did have FOMC participants talking about the balance sheet over the course of 2023, so last year. So again, the idea that all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's this focus on QT, and as a result, the market should be totally fixated on an imminent end to QT, I really think that is is at odds with the facts. So what have we sort of, what have we learned, though, and, and what have we done? We've, we've taken what FOMC participants have said. And, you know, if you listen to people like Lori Logan, who's at the Dallas Fed and used to run the SOMA portfolio at the New York Fed, people like Chris Waller, who's on the Board of Governors, they've said the reverse repo facility, getting that down close to zero, really important. And if anything, concerns about liquidity conditions from QT don't really materialize until the RRP facility is essentially at zero. Well, that to me says that seems like a pretty good marker for where they might actually want to start tapering QT or where they might want to go to a slower pace of runoff of the balance sheet. Lots of uncertainty, lots of moving parts there. We've penciled in getting down, you know, 
close to zero, but but not at zero in the Mayish time frame, which should be about the time where they'll they'll be able to figure out their the parameters for this slowing of QT, and then maybe they pull the trigger in June is the first month where they have this slower pace of QT. Could happen a month earlier or so, but it, it's hard to see it happening as early as the March meeting, just because there's plenty of shrinkage of the reverse repo facility that still has to happen. And then the question becomes, when do they ultimately end QT? And they've said all along, we want this so-called ample reserves framework. We don't want any any persistent funding stress in the markets. One can draw different inferences. Our sort of finger in the air estimate is about three and a quarter trillion dollars worth of reserves in the banking system. And if they cut the pace of QT in half, that would take you all the way to the beginning of 2025 for the end of QT. So again, I, I pretty strongly fade the idea that the end of QT is imminent, that somehow it's going to be a first half of the year or sort of first six, seven months of the year kind of phenomenon. If it happens in the second half of the year, or especially the fourth quarter of the year, that's not going to stun me. There's enough imprecision here that I could be off by a few months. Um, but if it happens in, you know, at the middle of the year, I, I think that would be truly surprising and much, much sooner than than is justified given how the Fed has been thinking about it. So that, that's where we are on the balance sheet. And in terms of the practicalities of an announcement, the timeline you mentioned gets us to a taper announcement either at the same meeting or very close to the, the the meeting where they actually cut rates, right? Is there an issue with making a two-pronged policy announcement at the same meeting or have they done enough of the work of separating the two types of policies that they could pull that off? So I think I think in their minds there's no tension. They are thinking about the two policy tools independently of each other. Our timing ends up being a coincidence based on money market conditions, the runoff of the reverse repo facility. And it it could easily be the case that, you know, either the timing of the first rate cut moves forward to May or the timing of the actual tapering of QT moves forward to May. They could swap places. Uh, I don't have any great conviction there because they're all very much reliant on the committee having a framework for how they want to think about these two policy tools and then looking at the data as they come in to make their decisions. What I do think is more important for the QT side of things is the committee has said they want to give advance notice to markets. In my experience in the Fed, it usually takes two FOMC meetings worth of discussion and debates and memo writing from the staff to be able to come to a firm conclusion. And so, you know, the earliest they do that in January and March, and they could take a final decision then at the May meeting. Ultimately, maybe they have those conversations in March and in May, and, and they take the final decision at the end of the May meeting, or maybe they wait till June. So all of it is sort of similar time horizon, but that's just by coincidence. And I don't think at this point they feel any intellectual tension about moving those levers independently of each other. They, they, they currently want everyone to think of, and they themselves think of the balance sheet as being mostly technical at this point and about plumbing. And the interest rate tool really is about the overall macro stance of policy. That was Seth Carpenter. He is a former Fed board economist and chief global economist at Morgan Stanley. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, Pedro.